1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello.
0: Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor to be in dialogue with Ruth Schwertfeger. She is Professor Emerita of German at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Today, we will be in dialogue regarding her newly published book, A Nazi Camp Near Danzig, Perspectives on Shame and on the Holocaust from Stutthof, published by Bloomsbury Academic Publishers 2022. Ruth, it is my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with you today.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you for
0: having me. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult
2: well um i think i would go back to pretty rigorous training and education uh in uh, in frankly beginning in my girls school in belfast northern ireland uh, where i um, at an early age was reading uh, french and german texts and especially poetry which i loved right right from the beginning And then from there, I went on to uh, Trinity College, and I read my uh, degree in modern languages there. Again, um, just adding another uh, layer of uh, education, especially in German literature that I kept pursuing, and ended up then uh, writing my dissertation Uh, At Oxford, on uh, Georg Kaiser, the German expressionist dramatist, and who really introduced me to the theme of exile and, uh, by extension, uh, the Holocaust. So, uh, with that kind of preparation, I have been, it's actually, I'm at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. I have a very Good uh, connections with Madison, but I've spent my academic life at in Milwaukee, uh, teaching uh, German literature, and uh, I've had a, a very, uh, very enjoyable uh, career. And uh, I'm, I'm I'm retired from the classroom, but certainly not from uh, research and from writing. So. That, Ari, is essentially uh, my background and um, my, my books are, are on a Theresienstadt, that was my first one, and Women of Theresienstadt, then a book on the German poet Elsa lasker Schuler, and that was followed by a book on uh, the, the uh, experiences of German-Jewish exiles in occupied France, uh, then a pause, and then comes uh, to What in your academic
0: background prepared you to write this book?
2: Well, really, that is actually a very good question, and it and is has a lot of depth to it because it allows one to reflect on, especially on teachers, and I think at. At school in Belfast, my teacher uh, was a woman called Anne Crone, and she was a novelist. And she had rather uh, poor health and uh, really belonged in uh, at university level. She herself uh, was trained at, at, at Oxford. And um, there weren't too many of us, so I had the privilege really of sitting with her uh, and in a kind of Tutorial system. I think she uh, appealed to something in my own heart and soul that was drawn to was drawn to uh, literature that um, of depth and uh, also of uh, profound sadness. the The documents of exile and then of the Holocaust. So I would put that first, and then at Oxford. Um, uh, Siegbert Praver, Professor Praver, who himself was a, a German Jewish exile in England. And I would definitely um, ascribe to him um, great influence. Indirect, but it was there. Um, and then just my my own readings, my own readings that were not necessarily all academic. Those were my preparations.
0: How many people were held at Stutthof? How many survived?
2: Well, the uh, let me start with that last question because that is a harder one actually to answer, Ari. Because mm-hmm. uh there were over 20,000 that were sent from the camp to other camps. And um so it's a, it's a hard statistic to see how many actually survived those uh Deportations, but there were hundred, uh, roughly around hundred and ten that went through this camp, and sixty five thousand uh, perished. So uh, that is, it's a it's a camp really that uh, we're only beginning to discover the the depths of uh, depravity and cruelty that that happened because. The year 19, in nineteen forty four, uh, when the ghettos and uh, Auschwitz, when when they were uh, liquidated, um, many of the of the Jews who were held in these places came then to Stutthof, and so uh, the the greatest number of the mortality rate is 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 really staggeringly high uh after uh 1944 and as well as the the winter marches when in january uh 1945 the beginning of of january over fifty thousand left the camp and uh made their way uh west and there were the the, the, the there's an also a staggering number uh of people who died and that so Uh, We are looking at uh, numbers that, um, you know, they truly, um, I don't think the archivists even in Stutthof, in the museum there, have an absolute number. And that has been a very sobering part, I would say, of my own uh, research, that every life counts and so you yes. say, like 65,000 perished. You know, that's a round number. I've seen 63,000. So um, it's a hard question. And they perished. They perished. And how they perished is uh, really what, what this book is, is is looking at.
0: How did Kristallnacht impact Danzig?
2: Well, it actually happened in Danzig uh, a few days later because uh, the thing about this part of uh, the Eastern uh, Eastern Europe, as it is often just referred to over there, you know, that it was it tended to come uh, events impacted it maybe a little bit later. than than in other places. So it was a few days later than what happened in in the the main Reich. And when it did happen, um, the police, the local police initially tried to help out a a bit and possibly when one reads that, it's in the book there very clearly. Um, It may look at that it wasn't quite as as cruel and awful as it had been in in other in in the Reich, but I think what it signaled was the response among uh, local people, and uh, I think that I have I hope have done a, a fairly good job in in actually showing the response locally, um, um, especially among uh, the uh, clerics. You know, there was not the outrage that one uh, would have thought would have happened, right? So Kristallnacht, it certainly happened. It was a wake-up call, and it did generate, um, I would say, quite a few of the the small Jewish community. You're looking at a a community, by that stage, around 10,000 or so. And um, it is a, a time ty- after Kristallnacht, uh, you had uh, the kinder transports. Uh, so there were several that were organized of, of these little ones uh, who were sent from Danzig then uh, to England. So it was important. Um, and I think it just underscored that this was a city whose uh, community was certainly not ready for this at, at, at any level.
0: What drew you to Stutthof Concentration Camp in particular? Can you comment on how you became interested in this particular camp and its yes. relationship to this book in formation?
2: Sure, thank you. Well. As you know, I have spent a lifetime in German literature. So I actually was acquainted with Stutthof through the writings of Günter Grass, who won, as you probably already know, the Nobel Prize in, in 1999, and who was um, really a famed uh, writer. And um, the Danzig trilogy, uh, that was actually named by a by a, a british scholar a danzig trilogy grass himself didn't call him, call it that um but these three novels really center around uh danzig and the uh, areas around that and especially in the third one uh, dog years Hundeljahre, there are several very important um, references and allusions to this camp, and um, they're dark and sinister. They're they're more uh, oblique in a way than direct. And for example, one of the characters uh, uh, tells another character, "You better uh, keep your mouth shut, or you're going to end up in Stutov." So, in other words, Stutthof was a presence. So when I came uh, to Stuto for the first time, uh, not knowing that I was going to spend the next 10 years or so writing about it, uh, I knew it from Gunter Grass. And you, you may already have, have uh, read some of Grass, but he is really a, a pretty amusing and satirical writer. But if you keep on reading Beyond the Danzig Trilogy, uh, you will come to his own confession that he made um, when he was in his, his late seventies that he himself, as a teenager, had been part of the SS, and that to me was uh, another a key component. And this this man who actually um, is known as a, you know someone who who scolded um countries for and people for their lack of of uh, social responsibility he was really quite the moralist and at in this as an elderly man shall we say to finally uh, confess that he himself um had in fact been part of the ss let me read uh if please, i might please uh, uh, from this. So I actually addressed the whole question um, of why, you know, how am I going to pr- attempt to um, to approach this camp? Let me read. Grass's terrain is at the very heart of this monograph entitled The Nazi Camp Near Danzig, Perspectives on Shame and on the Holocaust from Stutthof. The book has three strands that are reminiscent of leitmotifs in a traditional literary narrative. Danzig's pervasive presence, shame, and the suppression of memory, expressed at times by silence. In Grass's case, shame remains wrapped in silence until he confessed his guilt as an old man. These strands support the motif of Germandom, the organizing principle around which the book moves. Different from themes, and there will be an array of themes throughout, shame, silence, and dancing are structural, are more discernible at crucial junctures than at other times, when they simply evoke an unforced association with Germandom, its development and demise. So in other words, I make Germandom, it's Pursuit Deutschtum. what is it? I I analyze what it is, how it impacted this city, and proceeding then, uh, in a sense, as, uh, as a literary scholar, showing how that theme is supported by these leitmotifs um and one of them is certainly silence beginning with the silence of the, of grass himself um who was silent about his own um role in the ss even if he indeed was a very young man so let me quote again from from grass. The shame of the SS haunted him in his words. Yet for decades, I refused to admit to the word and to the double letters. What I had accepted with the stupid pride of youth, I wanted to conceal after the war out of a recurrent sense of shame. But the burden remained and no one could alleviate it. I will have to live with it the rest of my life." In his last work, A Meditation on His Life and on the debts that are still owed, Grass writes in the poem Balancing the Books about books being lined up side by side, supported by a wooden shelf. In the final stanza, he laments that though he no longer claims ownership of these books. They remain a burden. His final question is, I quote in translation, one line, is something missing that could add to the bottom line? I hear in these lines the pathos of debt and shame, as well as the desire for others to fill the bottom line in case lives are lost in silence.
0: Wow. Thank you for sharing.
2: Thank you. So obviously I go from that kind of shame to the shame then that was placed on the victims of Stutthof, And uh, beginning um, with the first phase of the camp, when Uh, the small community of those that remained in Danzig were deported to the camp. Uh, And we're talking about September 1939, when, as you know, uh, Poland was attacked. And these men, uh, no women at this stage, they came a few much later, but they were deported uh, along with local priests. And they were referred to then in the camp as Joden und Pfaffen, so Jews and priests. And if I might, Ari, um, um, I would like to share with the your audience um, a few lines from one of the priests, Polish priests, who was sent there. Please. I think it is instructive because... It is absolutely devoid of rancor and bitterness. It's his memory of saying goodbye to his father. So here's this priest looking at his elderly father who had been uh, permitted to actually uh, come and visit him, him briefly. And this is how his son remembers him. The father said my dear son these his brows his brows motion towards the guard these are not the germans from world war 1 the author writes about kissing the hand of his father when he took farewell from him bent over as if he carried a burden on his wide shoulders he walks along the poplar lined road which is covered by snow He turns around at the bend. He stops for a moment. It seems that he's hesitating, that he intends to turn back. He takes control of himself. He waves his hand, turns around and continues to walk without glancing back again. Three years later, when news reaches me in Dachau about my father being tortured to death, I could still see his tall, broad-shouldered, bent figure walking on this snow-covered road. Ari, that's Stutthof. That little excerpt, to me, exemplifies um, the kind of ethos that Many of these memoirs written looking back at their time, those who survived, um, presented in a very elegiac way. This is farewell. So in 1943, we have a new group coming in, obviously as uh, the occupying forces uh, move eastward, uh, collecting more prisoners, Um, bringing them in, Jews and non-Jews from uh, Lithuania. There's a group of intellectuals and one uh, who wrote uh, later, um, it is like, it's part memoir and part novel, Forest of the Gods. His name is Sruga. And he has a uh, um, he has a very uh, sardonic sarcastic um, satirical style that cuts right into uh, the depictions of guards etc and um he and actually a uh, and a chap who was uh, a Lithuanian priest i found that they they their depictions of life in the camp just illuminated certain aspects that were very, very important to opening up the camp in in all its brutality and in all its camaraderie, because you're looking at twenty four, twenty five different nationalities. By the see, the camp became then a, a bona fide a, a concentration camp in January uh, nineteen forty two. Right, Hitler had visited in November nineteen forty one had looked it over and finally with such great pride. It's just horrible. It's grotesque that they now were finally out of it. They started off just as a, a camp a, a imprisonment for civilian prisoners and then a labor camp. But now they can pride themselves in being part of the Third Reich CC system. Concentrationslager. They loved it. And so and um, these uh, arrivals from the occupied countries, uh, they're seeing this array of people now and uh, also the, the role of the SS. And I'm, I have a good documentation of local SS people, these Danziger, who were so proud uh, of being uh, SS men. And had a meteoric rise and they were, you couldn't believe they came from very simple educational backgrounds and now they were throwing their weight around and um, this is one description from Saruga and he is um, actually uh, in a pretty emaciated state. He's working for a local SS man called Sergeant Bublitz. And this is how he described himself and his boss. When I found myself working for him, I was a cripple. No question about it. Emaciated as a church rat with swollen feet, a rattling heart, quivering thighs. Bublets didn't force me to work much. Better yet, he provided me with extra meals from the SS kitchen mm-hmm. leftovers. He even organized a small mess tin for me so I could retrieve these meals. SS meals. Compared to ours, they were cheis d'oeuvre. Leftovers from here. Sometimes there was a vat full. Were given to almost all the prisoners who worked in the red building. They were doled out with full knowledge of the authorities, secretly, nonetheless. So it gives one... Um, a very clear picture of what it meant to be a prisoner and what it meant to be uh, an SS uh, man who was obviously uh, giving some leftovers to these men. Um, and at the head of this whole group, and I spent some time on him, uh we know there were there were two uh, commandant. In Stutthof, the first one was a man called Max Pauli. And uh, he was promoted and left. And then he was replaced uh, by a, a guy called uh, Paul Werner Hoppe. And it was under Hoppe's um, tenure there until the end that a lot of these uh, atrocities then took place. Um, Ari, might I share with you then how this Other Lithuanian described the man who was really had probably the most everyday authority, a guy called Theodor Maia.
0: Please, I would be grateful.
2: All right. Well, um, I think that this is important for two reasons. Number one, that tells us even more about the level of sadism in Stutthof. And number two, I would submit that this is an example of um, of writing, of detail, of drama that somehow has has been overlooked. And I hope that my my book will show these little corners and crevices that contain uh, literature and works of of, of literature that really need to be read. So um Meyer survived, obviously. His victims didn't. Um and his he gave testimony that he was only, you know, kind of what Browning and his ordinary men syndrome. That's the that was his defense. He was only doing his job. And he was essentially uh he Was a decent man, he rationalized it, um, as doing his job. Um, that he himself was klein burgerlich, he came from this kind of working class domesticity. Um, and um, he really, uh, why is why are what was I supposed to do? He actually asked, What did you expect me to do? And now I want to write some lines and tell you really my side of the story like there are two sides to cruelty and and sadism
0: wow wow
2: So, um, that's what uh illa his name is cuts right into at the center of the drama is the failure of one man to remove his cap in the presence of maya the capos that day appeared to be very nervous and were dealing out blows at the slightest provocation. Illa writes. Everything was more or less in order by this time. Even the corpses of those who had died during the day had been lined up with stiff military precision. All eyes were focused expectantly on Maya with no results. He remained silent. We waited. After a while, rain began to fall. It soaked our uncovered heads and trickled down our necks and our shoulders. But still, no word from Meyer. He stood with arms akimbo, moving his head slowly from side to side, as though he were contemplating something. There was a look of utter disgust on his face. Suddenly, we became aware of what he was gazing at so attentively. Another corpse had apparently been resurrected and had by this time managed to prop itself on its elbows. But horror of horrors, his cap was still perched on top of its head. Meyer had taken about as much as he was going to take. He let his arms fall to his side and began to walk slowly toward the ranks of the dead. We noticed that his gait was unusually awkward, almost to the point of lameness, in fact. Still maintaining silence, he stopped right next to the prisoner and kicked him with all his might. Only then did the unfortunate man become aware of his negligence, and he had just enough time to cast aside the offending article before he rolled over and died. The cap itself was seized by a sudden gust of wind and carried out of sight. In one of my reviews, the original the manuscript Ari, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't be surprised actually if it came from from your own country, from one mm-hmm. of the historians. Mm-hmm. and it was he or she um had noticed that i dealt uh in quite a lot of detail uh with a passage like that and this person and i'm very very grateful to that historian said this is um a gift that you 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 should develop and mature and use as you analyze Otherwise, I was just going to keep going on and give another example, right? Thinking that that, that's really more in keeping with a book uh, that is about the history, the evolution of the camp at Stutthof. And I paused and I thought, no, I'm going to analyze this. And may I share with you how I approached this? Please,
0: I would be grateful.
2: With consummate skill, directs a scene that belongs to the genre of drama rather than prose narrative. The tension is so palpable that we forget for a brief moment that we are in Stutthof and are pulled into the last act of a tragedy. The setting is a military parade ground where obedience, discipline and timing are clearly the expected order of the day. But there's a problem. The players in this theatre piece are not... Soldier recruits, but corpses in a concentration camp. Earlier in this chapter, we noted Srogo's narrative skills in depicting a prisoner himself as an ailing church rat under the somewhat benevolent eye of SS man Bublitz, who breaks prison rules and allows the prisoners to eat the leftovers of the SS kitchen. In Illa's drama, there's no such mercy, for these prisoners are lifeless, and even lower than vermin, Ila places his characters under the direction of a silent sadist whose strong boot awakened one of the corpses just in time to take off his cap before him, the commanding officer. It was to be his last gesture before rolling over to die. The depiction of his last moments is followed by a haunting detail that directs us to look up above the ranks of the dead to where the prisoner's cap is carried by a gust of wind, I quote, out of sight. Ella's culminating short sentence captures the poignancy and tragedy of a death that is totally senseless and beyond the grasp of the
1: rational mind. slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: There's no deus ex machina in this drama. No mitigating factor as in the suruga narrative. This one segment of the Illa memoir could stand on its own as a hidden gem of Stutthof. Its silence and its shame are perfectly captured for one brief moment. This cap may be out of sight. But the anguish of the anonymous prisoner's death will live on in Illa's prose drama. The effectiveness of Illa and Sroga as writers lies in their ability to connect both directly and indirectly the interned and their guards. Both these Lithuanians describe daily life in Shtutov but they implicitly ask more from us as readers. Their literary strategies, irony, understatement, juxtaposition, are not constrained by the camp setting and the characters, whether self-portraits of a dying prisoner. They remain as written testimonies. It is not that we give better or more accurate Uh, get better or more accurate information about the camp than the archival files or even other less skilled writers. Their testimonies are compositions that infuse ordinary words with new life despite the presence of death that threatens to quench them. Can you
0: outline the history of the Stutthof camp for us between 1939 and 1945? What were the main phases of the evolution of the Stutthof camp? Right.
2: Well, there's a modest beginning in terms of numbers um, and its population. So, September 1939, they bused their prisoners out to this place that had already actually been selected and chosen back in the 30s in Danzig. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew where to send them. Um, and, of course, they arrived and there were just a couple of, of uh, buildings. One building had been previously an old people's home and so what happened with the few hundred began with maybe two or three hundred. And they were, for the most part, the um, intellectuals, the uh, professionals of Danzig, the lawyers, the, the doctors, the clerics, etc. So that's the, uh, the demographic that they focused on and, and uh, arrested uh, and then took out in these uh, trucks uh to Stutthof. So that was the first phase for what they called civilian prisoners. And it was it was a very rough phase. There were there were those who died uh right at the beginning of malnutrition. And uh they were the ones that actually were were given the job of building the build of the camp, of of building the uh, bunks and the uh, getting ready obviously to receive more and as you know the the paramilitary uh groups that that roamed around and killed and maimed that's a large part of the story i don't cover it in great detail because don't forget that this is an overview and i don't claim that it is anything Done that. It gives you an overview of the history. So, from that phase, it went into a labor camp when hundreds more came, and they began then to open up uh, sub camps. And Stutthof became, in the end, uh, a camp that is actually known for its uh, filial camp system. So, that right from the beginning, they had sub camps. And, uh, for example, one camp uh, near Danzig was used to to clean up uh, the area where uh, that had been attacked initially. Um, And so from there, then it goes into uh, the the 1942 is the kind of culminating point of the camp's history when it, as I noted earlier, became a bona fide concentrationslager. And uh, Himmler signed off on that. And then from there, I would say 43, and that's why I wanted to read from these two uh, uh, memoirs of Lithuanians. You have many other uh, Eastern European people uh, that were arrested and came in um, from the Baltic states. And um, then you have uh, the growing presence of the SS, because uh, some of the they recruited heavily from these occupied countries. And uh, then I would say that the 1944 um, is a key year for for the camp because there are two major incidents or events, not incidents, forgive me, events that happened, the the attempt on on Hitler's life, right? And that uh, generated a new flow of people into the camp, people who were associated even remotely with von Stauffenberg, they ended up. But let, let me just point out at this stage, um what you know, don't forget that my my central theme is Germandom. And how you see that reflected in the camp in 1944. So they brought in these relatives of von Stauffenberg, and they were largely er aristocrats. And they housed them in uh, barracks that they called the Germanen uh, barracks. In other words, um, their racial, racial ideology is alive and well, and it is visual and visible. And these people were were should not be contaminated with others, especially not Jews, and especially not uh the Soviet, uh, the POWs, Soviet POWs. So they had their own barracks and uh, they were given privileges that the other prisoners were not. And um so von Stauffenberg's uh, mother actually. I find a very interesting letter in USHMM written by uh, uh, Frau von Staufenberg uh, about um, sorry not written by her written by her son about his mother, and he, he says in the in this letter that she died in in Stutthof. She actually died uh, later um, when the. They left in January 1945 uh, and she died in one of the um, the points or you couldn't call them camps. But in the course of these winter marches, um, they stopped in certain places. And apparently this dear woman uh, became quite ill and died there. So that would be the germs. Of course, the the Warsaw Uprising, um, it generated a uh, thousands that were, were sent um, as a reprisal and many of them ended up in Stuthof. And so that's 44. And if I may just um, quote here, if you don't mind, Please. from a memoir um, that came from, let's see now if I, I can uh, find it, it um, it is a woman by the name of Helen Lewis. That was her um, her pseudonym.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, she actually. Why I initially was so interested in this woman. She ended up in all, all places. Belfast. She was trained as a ballet dancer in in Prague, and uh, she mm-hmm. was in Auschwitz, and she was one of many who in 1944 were sent uh, westward to Stutthof. And um, she her, her, she was born with uh, uh, the name Katz in Czechoslovakia, and she and her husband were deported first to Theresienstadt and then to Auschwitz, where they were separated, and suddenly uh, her husband uh, perished, and she ended up then in... Uh, Northern Ireland, and wrote a wonderful memoir called A Time to Speak uh, in 1992. She wrote about her first impressions of Stutthof. At first sight, Stutthof looked to be an improvement on Auschwitz. The nearby Baltic Sea freshened the air and lent a strange transparency that softened the outlines of ugly buildings. We had enough room to stretch out at night, but there were no bunks and very few blankets. Accustomed as we were to SS guards everywhere, we were bewildered that they were only to be seen at roll calls. We were in fact left more or less to ourselves with a minimum of food and water, appalling sanitation, and no idea of what was going to happen to us. We sat and lay around all day waiting not knowing for what become becoming more and more depressed we had survived auschwitz and now in this place we were doomed to die lost and forgotten of sheer neglect of course they didn't uh were not permitted to stay long in in that uh state and they were sent to sub camps then to work, this woman sent to kochstedt and um, the others uh, as well, and many of these these uh, women actually uh, died in malnutrition and the brutality that happened in those in those years. And by that time, they had um, they were actually exterminating some in Stutthof, and uh, that is all in this chapter. Um, which I've called Entering the Final Solution. And then the last chapter uh, is on the uh, the so-called death marches, the winter marches, and I call that then the collapse of Germandom. Uh, 50,000 people to quarter masculine, They staggered it. Uh, ten, some 10,000 at a time were leaving uh, Stutthof, and um, then uh, a couple of weeks later, another group left, etc. But this was a brutal winter um, nineteen uh, begin, you know, end of nineteen forty four, beginning of nineteen forty five. Awful low temperatures, and it was, um, and I I've included not just statistics on this, but just the. The, the starvation and hunger pangs and and one helping another stagger along. And there is uh, actually very, very hard because many of these were women. And as a woman, I can't begin to tell you how hard it is uh, to write about this. And... Um, I found it was actually a friend um, friend of a friend who sent me a photograph of a grave Um, and the grave I put a photograph of it and close it it, in the book because it's the photograph of a grave site, final resting place off the main roads I go again to the role of the ordinary, the gravestone with the Star of David indicates that 30 Jewish women are buried here and they perished in March 1945 on a death march from Stutthof. Local people tend the grave. The Gauleiter Foster had boasted about making, I put in, inverted commas, the corridor, free from both Poles and Jews. We know that he did not succeed in his lifetime. This grave shows that he never will. And these local villagers, not all that far, it's a little village, Kashubian village called bedomen and it's about 30 miles um, from Gdańsk. And it is tended faithfully by local people. And I find that personally very, very touching. Let me juxtapose that with what was happening in the spring of 1945 to Grass. Okay. He was taking part in a training session. He writes about this brief exposure to one of the Juncker schools, during his short-lived tenure with the Waffen SS. During these last weeks of the war, they were training young men who possessed, and I quote, the proper national and racial consciousness for future positions after the final victory, end quote. Isn't that interesting? Wow. That they're still talking victory. In the spring of 1945, they wanted to teach these young men, and I quote, to handle Lebensraum issues, to resettle the non-German population, rebuild the cities, manage the economy, end quote. I go on. Could there be a more striking contrast between these grand designs for a Germandom that had been defeated, and the graveyard for Jewish women in Bedouin. On territory, the Germans referred to as the Polish corridor, where Poles were dispossessed of their homes and identities, driven out in order to provide living space for those described in the Juncker schools of Nazi Germany as having, I quote, the proper racial consciousness, where Jews from the towns of the Polish corridor were driven out of their homes to die in camps like Stutthof or to be sent to Auschwitz and death camps to be annihilated. The domen is off the beaten track both of history and of geography. May this grave for 30 unnamed Jewish women cared for by unnamed Poles and Kashubians remain as a commemorative emblem for all the victims of Stutthof. And its filial camps, after a long hiatus of shame and silence, may they rest in peace. There's a lot more to be done. I would hope that colleagues, my my uh, colleagues, especially in Canada, honestly, uh, who are, um, who who know more so much more about Polish history than I ever ever would. Come anywhere near, and who speak the language? I would say that I would love personally to see someone write a book about um, art, a poetry of what happened at night. Emaciated people trying to keep their 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 souls alive. I think there should be a lot more. Um, in general, written uh, about that, especially in Stutthof. Now, I am not one to ever use the um, expression of you know the triumph of the spirit, because I think, boy, what happens souls that couldn't get their spirits up? And so I don't go in that direction at all. But I know there is a legacy in there. And um, I am profoundly grateful for the help of the archivists at Stutthof uh, Museum. Uh, Dr. Danuta Druva, who is the head archivist, she has she has helped me so much, and I never would have been able to pull this these um, excerpts and everything about this book together without their help. And I am deeply, deeply grateful. And if, in the acknowledgments that I make, I have to go to uh, Dr. Druva first and foremost she was so helpful there's a lot more to be written and I, you know you also ask why has there been a silence i try to to address it it's probably inadequate i mean the the documentation and uh, was spread all over the place in 1945 and of course you have the the intrusion of soviet ideology only wanting frankly their kind of testimony and witness that got in the way too to so there are other reasons too but it's a you know it's a corner of of Poland today i um I'm very very drawn to it to Gdańsk it's um I mean I would need to to know Polish to do anything myself it's too late sadly but there there are others I I know who can um, take this story up. And I, I did my best with everything that I had. And I must say, I'm, I'm very grateful to historians who, who work with me in this. But also, I think I'm very grateful for reviews that said, let your own voice come through here. Yeah. And I, I did. And um, I did that by allowing... Voices of writers and um, in in their excerpts to tell the story. So that's what I did, diary, and I I trust that it will be. You know that uh, right at the end in my epilogue, um, I mentioned the fact that in that actually um, Prince William and his wife, uh, they were then the Duchess of Cambridge, uh, they visited. The first of the House of Windsor to visit a concentration camp, wow. which is in a way of really quite shocking, isn't it? Wow. 2017, they went there, and um, they, I write that the photographs reveal strained, sad expressions, and they they wrote in the visitors' book that they were intensely moved. Um, but um, they're doing a very good job in, of education at Stutthof. The, the museum is not only a place where you can visit and see the artifacts of the camp, but there are many school groups that come and um, it should be visited. So the book will be coming out in, in paperback uh, in actually this month, which will make it more accessible uh, to people.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book?
2: Well, I'll be honest. It took me a long time to, to recuperate. Yes. And um, I like to go back to um, the home I was brought up in, in Northern Ireland to just to rest and to, it took, it took a, a lot of energy and, and, um, so I haven't really begun to, um, frankly, to absorb this camp. There's it, it's a very, there's an unfinished work there. I know, not to be done by me. But um, I'm, I'm actually, you know, I've written some short stories uh, that are in the form of a kind of quasi memoir, but hiding and behind memoir mm-hmm. of. Growing up in Northern Ireland, and I'm, I'm actually going to be doing uh, a, a podcast on that, of, of reading those stories.
0: Wow. So
2: I think anyone who knows enough about the, the troubles and the tensions in Northern Ireland, uh, you know, it's not that they help me understand this, but that's my immediate context. So I'm attempting now to meditate a little bit on that
0: thank you for your generosity in providing such eloquent and erudite answers throughout the course of our dialogue thank you for all the wisdom and knowledge you shared and thank you for all the silent suffering involved in producing a masterpiece of a book like this
2: you're very kind Ari and it was a a pleasure to work with you and thank you for your work I actually noticed that you had interviewed a Canadian woman who wrote about the experiences of her Finnish father yes it's a memoir it was beautiful that that memoir was recommended to me when when I was at actually a, a conference um a retreat in in Canada and um I I tracked it down and I loved it it was very very well written and uh, gives a lovely insight uh, into what happened to these Finnish sailors. Lovely, lovely memoir. And I hope your readers will in Canada will, will track it down and 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 read it because she's she did a beautiful job with it.
0: Thank you wholeheartedly.
2: My pleasure and privilege.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am signing off as Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Ruth Schwedfeger. She is Professor Emerita of German at University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. We have been discussing her newly published book, A Nazi Camp near Danzig, Perspectives on Shame and on the Holocaust from Stutthof, published by Bloomsbury Academic Publishers, 2022.